Our journey through the scriptures has us in the Minor Prophet of Jonah, a fascinating book. The book of Jonah, four chapters. It's the shortest, uh, or one of the shortest prophecies, I should say, Obadiah being the shortest, I suppose. Jonah had an interesting career as a prophet. The son of Amittai only shows up one time in Second Kings, I think. And uh, he's mentioned there his life was uh, really the setting for his life was that of King Jeroboam II in the nation of Israel, whose uh, corresponding reign was with Uzziah, uh, the king of Judah. And this period of time in the life of Israel and Judah was, uh, they were glory days. Uh, absolutely. They, uh, Jeroboam II was one of the greatest military leaders and preparers of all of the history of Israel. He pushed the borders all the way back to Solomon's northern border. Uh, and so we see that um, you know, Jeroboam II was, was uh, quite a king. Those were good days, material prosperity. Were you to look at the nation of Israel and also the nation of Judah at that period of time, you would say, wow, the Lord is blessing them. However, if you were to look at the prophets that proclaimed the truths of God's Word, particularly Amos, um, also Hosea, you would see that a different story is told. And that was a story of tremendous spiritual decline. Their messages were prophecies of judgment for mixing the worship of God with the idolatry of the surrounding nations. So we have material prosperity and the corresponding spiritual decline. Does that sound familiar to you? I hope. Hopefully it does. Hopefully you recognize in the setting that Jonah proclaimed the truths of God's Word. Hopefully you'll recognize that there's a tremendous similarity uh, in the nations of Israel and Judah and in our own nation, in our own time today. Jonah is also unique uh, in that it is an occasion, one of the rare occasions, although not the only occasion for sure, where there is a proclamation of God's word made to those who are not God's people initially, the Gentiles. Now, Jonah wasn't the first to proclaim the truths of God's word to Gentiles. Uh, We know that God, for instance, embedded missionaries uh, in Egypt, no doubt in the person of Joseph, as well as others that, uh, that followed him. No doubt Moses. Do you think uh, Moses told the truths of God to Pharaoh? Again and again and again. Uh, declaring that judgment will come unless they relent. And the judgment did come. They did not relent. We know that Daniel, for instance, and his friends were embedded, as it were, into Babylon as missionaries, where they also proclaimed the truths of God's Word. And no doubt Amos and others prophesied woes to the nations. We've looked at that already. And so here is Jonah to proclaim the truth to 
the nation of Assyria. Now let's think about just the geography here. We, we think of Nineveh, and Nineveh was uh, really uh, significant, uh, if not the single most important aspect or center of power for the Assyrian nation. Uh, Nineveh was 550 miles northeast of Joppa, Joppa being on the coast where Tel Aviv is now in Israel. Tel Aviv is in the southern coast of Israel. So if you were to look uh, this, of course, from my perspective here, uh, nonetheless, uh, Nineveh is 550 miles northwest of Joppa. It is the current location of Mosul, Iraq. However, we know that Jonah intended not to go to Nineveh. He intended to go to Tarshish. And you might, should wonder where Tarshish was. And so, if you were to have the impression that Jonah rolled down to the port of Joppa and he simply looked at the board of ships that were leaving and he noticed that one was going to Tarshish and the other was going to Nineveh and he picked the Tarshish, then you would not be thinking very properly since to go to Nineveh is a land route and would not be on a ship. Tarshish, however, was 2,500 miles from Joppa. It was not even in the Mediterranean Sea. As a matter of fact, Tarshish is actually west of Gibraltar. Uh, And so that was where Jonah intended to go. That's where he intended to get away from God. Well, you know some of the basics of the story. We know that uh, God came to Jonah, calling him to speak the truth to Nineveh. We know that he rejected that idea. He wanted to remove himself. He seemed to really share a certain theological fallacy that some of the sailors on the ship did, and that was this idea that even the God of the universe was somehow regional, that he could actually escape from the sovereign eye, the sovereign power of God by going a really long way away. And of course, we know that didn't work at all. And so I'd like to draw your attention to some of the basics of the story and then let's, let's apply it to our own lives today. Jonah, let's think about what it is that God is telling us. You may say, well, I don't, I don't know what it is that I might learn from Jonah today and hopefully we can, we can draw your attention to uh, some things that are quite applicable to us today in our own setting. And first of all, let's consider just the, the, the typical, very simple, rudimentary process by which God addresses nations and individuals. The process that's laid out in the book of Jonah is the same process that God uses time and time again when He intends to express His mercy and grace to Individuals and to nations. For instance, the sins of, we know of, na- of a nation would bring threats of judgment. It's not as if God didn't know what Nineveh was doing, right? And uh, we we'll, may, may mention this later, but 
perhaps you realize that there is no such thing as a sovereign nation of Assyria, nor is there a sovereign nation of Babylon. Those nations don't exist anymore. They were completely destroyed by God. However, he did extend mercy to the nation of Assyria, and he extended that mercy through the prophet Jonah. The sins of a nation bring threats of judgment, and God concerns himself with Gentile nations long before the advent of Christ. I draw your attention to Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. You may, again, wonder about the process that God uses. You see, what will certainly follow from sin that is unrepented of? Destruction. Eternal destruction will certainly follow from sin that isn't repented of. And so, here we have uh, sin on on the account of the inhabitants of Nineveh, right? A great sin. They already have a reputation of being a wicked, horrifyingly wicked nation. And God will, in fact, use them in the future to bring judgment on Israel. And likely that's the reason that Jonah was so reluctant to teach them and tell them about uh, the possibility of God relenting of the disaster he intended to bring on Nineveh because they would be a nation used to bring judgment to Israel. But we see this is the way the Lord works. He calls a messenger to warn the nation. Again, here we see in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God pities, particularly the young in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left. In chapter 4, verse 11, the the entire prophecy of Jonah ends in a question There aren't very many books in the Bible. As a matter of fact, I think there's only one other book in the Bible that ends in a question. But the question here, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? This is not uh, an attack upon the personal wisdom and ability to cipher of the Ninevites. This is simply a declaration that there are 120,000 small children in Nineveh. They don't have a moral understanding. They don't, literally, they don't know their right hand from their left. So there's 120,000 children in Nineveh. So that would indicate that there were about 600,000 people that lived in this huge city of Nineveh. And so the Lord, again, He has pity upon them And then thirdly, the messenger we see here reluctantly proclaims God's message. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. 
Now, you know, of course, that Jonah initially rejected the call that God made to him. He ended up on a ship headed to Tarshish. The sailors there recognized uh, that this was no normal storm, as it were, uh, that this was of the Lord, and uh, they threw Jonah into the sea. And God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. And he was in the belly of that fish for three days, and Jonah prayed to the Lord. That's the uh, complete chapter 2 there, Jonah's prayer. So anyway, when the fish spits him out, he is called again of God to go to Nineveh, and in fact he does. So the sins of a nation bring threats of judgment. God calls upon a messenger to warn the nation. The messenger warns the nation. If the people repent, then the Lord relents. Chapter 3, verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now, children, this was uh, uh, this sort of strange scenario, covering himself in sackcloth and kind of a rough burlap, if you will. Covering himself with ashes is an expression of sincere humility and repentance before God. And that's what happens here. Verse 7, he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything that is their fasting, let them not drink food or water, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The Lord relents. So again, a typical process, right? So uh, we know that with unconfessed sin, unrepented of sin, um, lives that aren't uh, cast at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be uh, eternal judgment for them. So what does God do? He sends a messenger to them that they might hear the word of God. And that's what happened to Nineveh. These These were a wicked people, the Ninevites. Had a reputation for cruelty in battle. And so God relented from what he was going to do. That's what the Bible says. He, he, he decided, he had set before the Ninevites a conditional uh, promise to them that he would bring judgment if they didn't repent, and in fact they did, and so he didn't bring that judgment. The same is true for us. Uh, there will be judgment if we don't repent of our sins for us. And if we repent, then he will not bring Eternal damnation to us. Let's look at Jonah now in chapter 4. What did he think of this? Well, verse 1 says, It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. He was angry. I'm not really sure... um, about the scale of anger, but it seems that Jonah was pretty angry since he was ready to die. 
And he wasn't, he wasn't ready to die because he was so despondent. He wasn't ready to die because of his impending death over judgment. He wasn't ready to die because there was some nation bearing down upon him. He wasn't ready to die for any of that. Jonah was ready to die because he was angry. He was angry. And he preferred to see the entire nation of Assyria destroyed than to see God relent from his judgment and extend mercy. Now again, uh, as I mentioned, uh, perhaps because Hosea prophesied that Assyria would be used of God to bring judgment, perhaps that's why Jonah was such a reluctant prophet. But nonetheless, he was flaming angry, as they say. He was far more concerned about this plant uh, read in your hearing. So what God did is, you know, after Jonah proclaimed the truths of God, and they did, uh, you know, he, he, he left the city, got himself up, on a hill, and he be- and he just wanted to watch and see what was he looking for. He wanted to see Nineveh burn. He he wanted to see that entire city destroyed. He was angry, so he built himself a little booth or a little tent and. Uh, he decided just to sit there and wait. It was hot. And the Lord brought a, a strong wind and difficult weather just to give Jonah something else to complain about. But he also grew up this amazingly fast-growing plant to shade him. And after it shaded him, and Jonah was pretty happy about that plant, you know the story, he uh, introduced a worm to that plant, the worm ate it, the plant died, and Jonah was angry about that. Very upset. As a matter of fact, he was far more concerned about the plant that shaded him than the deaths of nearly a million people. God's mercy made Jonah angry. His mercy made Jonah angry. What do you think of that? The story includes incredible contrasts. You've got the wicked nation of Assyria being extended mercy and the love of God. You've got Jonah, the Jewish prophet, angry over telling Gentile nations that unless they repent, they will perish. Many Jews resented the extension of God's love and mercy to Gentiles and otherwise wicked people. Their national pride inclined them to consider that they had a monopoly on the love of God and His grace. So the national pride of the Israelites inclined them to think that they alone owned the mercy of God. Now, I think it might be helpful to think categorically about what the story isn't about. What it isn't about. This is not a story about diminishing the wickedness of people and nations that God has mercy upon.
the mercy extended to people and to nations is not an expression of a diminishing of the wickedness of those people. In offering mercy to Nineveh, God isn't saying, what you did really isn't so bad, therefore I'm going to extend mercy to you. This is also not a story which indicates that God doesn't care about the sins of nations and individuals. You might wonder why it is that we have a story here about Nineveh, a notoriously wicked place. Why is it that we're told about this nation? I mean, why did God choose the Israelites? I mean, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible say that I chose you because you were such a beautiful people? A people that's so committed to mercy and grace? No. (laughs) It wasn't any of that. He chose them because He's God. And He wanted to choose them, period. End of story. That's it. So this isn't a story which indicates that God doesn't care about the sins of nations and individuals. This is also not a story condemning a deep appreciation for, nor great hopes for the future of the nations of our citizenship. This is not a declaration that you shouldn't be patriotic. That somehow it's not important uh, that, that, uh, that Jonah was committed to his own country. That's, that's, that's a good thing. This is not a story that rejects that. It's not a story about that. But it is a story which, if taken seriously, will reveal our own thoughts about our own personal worthiness for redemption. It is a story which, if taken seriously, will reveal our own thoughts on our own personal worthiness for redemption. If you are redeemed, why did God save you? Why do you think God redeemed you? Why do you think that, why do you think that God used the exact same process that He used in Nineveh on you? There was a sinful individual. They will spend eternity in hell unless they turn and repent. I'm going to send a messenger to them. If they turn and repent, I will give to them eternal life. Well, you might say I'm redeemable because I'm not that bad. Or maybe because we're beautiful people. Or maybe because our children are precious. Or maybe because we have a promising future. We're very important to the organization, as it were. Or maybe it's because God has been materially kind to us, thus proving His love. Maybe you find yourself redeemable because we live in a Christian nation, so-called, or that our nation is the only hope in the world. This is an important matter. Are you personally worthy of being redeemed? And why? Does God owe you salvation because you're beautiful in His sight? No. No, His... His coming to us was completely unconditional. That is, it had nothing to do with who we are as individuals or where we live. 
But we probably should admit that we project on other people who seem to be particularly wicked. We think of them differently. This is a story which, if taken seriously, will reveal our own thoughts about our primary responses to people who commit terrible offenses. For instance, our inclination may be that of condemnation. Now, there are plenty of people that do some very wicked things around us. It might be because of how they live. It might be because of what they do. It might be because their nation is committed to the destruction of other nations. It may be because they're committed to uh, horrible atrocities and they desire to express those nationally or internationally. It may be because their choices lead children astray. They bring God's judgment upon us. We may desire for their spiritual demise. As a matter of fact, we may, we may demand that they go and fix themselves before coming near us again. It may be our response, condemnation. These are horrible people. They intend great harm. They lead the nation astray. What was Jonah's message? Well, chapter 3, verse 4 says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, that's not a rejection of specifics when declaring the truths of God, but nonetheless we see that this was all a process in which God used for Nineveh. Another response that we can have, uh, perhaps, with those who commit terrible offenses, is that of prayer. Enduring prayer. We continue to pray for whatever the case may be. People that are committed to a horrible philosophy of life, who reject God, who again, bring down the nation, reject moral standards and so forth. Is that a possibility for us, that we endure in prayer, that we're specific about this prayer, that we're sincere, that we actually strategize about sharing Christ? Once they are redeemed, they have a lifetime of needing to grow in grace and obedience to build new habits. Think, Think about it. How will those people ever hear the gospel? How will they know the truth of God? And you might say, well, they could buy a Bible at the bookstore. Is that how you came to faith? Probably not. 
This is a story which reveals that the nature of our sovereign God is one of unconditional mercy and grace. The nature of our sovereign God is one of unconditional mercy and grace. Not really sure why people might be inclined to say that the God of the Old Testament is some wicked ogre. But they don't need to look any further than the four chapters in Jonah to see that that's not the nature of our God. It reveals that God is fully aware of all that occurs in His creation. The one God of the universe is not merely regional. He's not merely in our church or in our home. Children, do you think it's possible that might, you might think that God is regional? That maybe God's only at church? That He doesn't see you? That He doesn't concern Himself with you when you're not here or when you're not at home? That somehow when you go off with your friends or you access things on a telephone that you shouldn't and so forth, do you think that God is regional, that He doesn't see that? That he doesn't know that. We can we can laugh at the sailors on the ship to Tarshish who came from different regions than Jonah and they prayed to their God. And we can say, oh, that's really foolish to think that God is only regional, but the reality is is sometimes we act the same way. It also reveals that sin brings judgment and eternal separation from God. Assyria ceased to exist shortly after they conquered Israel. And they were conquered by the Babylonians. Children, you'll uh, look in vain at a current globe of the world to find the nation of Assyria or the nation of Babylon. It isn't there. Those nations were destroyed. They no longer exist. God is concerned about the fate of nations and those nations that reject God will ultimately be destroyed. As will the individuals who reject God. God is a God who will bring judgment and eternal separation from Himself in continued sin. We see also this story reveals that God alone can forgive and restore sinners. This redemption isn't defined by national boundaries or governments. There are some people that still think this way, however. Other nations struggle with with the God of the West. And no doubt they do in some ways because we don't always present a beautiful picture of what it means to walk with the Lord. They might hear the Gospel and yet concern themselves. As Leonard Ravenhell says, we don't need a new definition of Christianity, we need a new demonstration of Christianity. A new demonstration.
It also reveals that God works primarily through His servants in the proclamation of the Word of God for the transition of souls. It reveals that God works primarily through His servants in the proclamation of the Word of God for the transition of souls. Do you expect the Lord to do His work in you primarily through the proclamation of His Word? So again, the normal process, right? There's evil in the world. God will judge that evil. He sends His messenger to proclaim His truth of repentance and forgiveness. Those people can repent and believe and be saved, right? And all of this comes about normally through the proclamation of the Word of God. This transition, this new process, those who were born into new life, into God, uh, they have set before them a lifetime of becoming like Christ, of building those habits. It's not instantaneous, right? When you came to faith, those of you that are redeemed, when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, did all of your bad habits fall away the next morning? I mean, imagine what it would be like if, if you didn't have a memory at all, if you had no habits at all, there were no habits in your life. Remember, well, imagine what that would be like. You would wake up in the morning and you would have no idea what to do. No idea. You wouldn't think of brushing your teeth or getting a cup of coffee. You'd be utterly, there's no habits at all. None. And think about how long it takes to develop and to get those, gain those habits, right? And think about, Think about the, the cables, as it were, of our sinful flesh drawing us away from those habits. And so again, we see the process that God uses, the normal process. We spoke last week in the book of First Thessalonians about what a normal Christian looked like and how the normal Christian grew. And what we see here proclaimed in Jonah is that the way that people are transformed is through the proclamation of His Word. But the question for you today is, do you expect to be changed by the proclamation of the Word of God? Do you expect to grow in grace? Do you expect to transition those poor habits to godly habits? Do you expect that that would occur through the proclamation of the Word of God? Do you, do you, do you, do you expect that to happen? Is your priority of those things, is it reflective of your expectations? Because, because see, we may want to say, well, no, no, I, I want a different process. And God says, well, this is my process. This is the way that I have declared that it will work. Again, this is a story that reveals that God works primarily through His servants in the proclamation of the Word of God for the transition of souls. So it's a good time to ask ourselves the question, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? Now, God asks Jonah a question twice in the story. There are a number of questions in the short four chapters of the book of Jonah, but he asks Jonah twice, Do you do well to be angry? He asks him in verse 4 and in verse 9. Verse 4, the Lord said, 
Do you do well to be angry? Reminds me of the question that God asked Cain. Genesis chapter 4. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? He asked Jonah the question, Do you do well to be angry? Verse 9, God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Now, let's just think about the question here. The question, do you do well to be angry? So if God asks you the question, do you do well to be angry? The same way that he asked Jonah here, what do you think the expected proper answer would be to that question. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? There's no doubt about it. The implied answer to that question is no. My anger is improper. And this is one of the reasons why I think Jonah was a Texan. He confidently blew right by the question and said, Oh yes, I do well to be angry, God. As a matter of fact, I'm so angry, I could die. That's what he said. A window into our humanity. The strength of resolve contained in very sinful inclinations. Do you do well to be angry? Angry about some very wicked things. There is... Absolutely, a biblically conformable anger, no doubt. And we, we see that. But the biblically conformable anger must, of course, include a longing that people who have so incredibly turned away from God, that God can have mercy on them the same way as He did for us. the same way that He did for us. We have a God who is filled with mercy. We have a God who is committed to the turning of the wicked to righteousness. We have a God who we can't out-sin 
God such that He can't save us. And also, like the Apostle Paul, though we are the chief of sinners, the song that we sang, I will glory in my Redeemer. I will glory in my Redeemer whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung Him on the judgment tree. The Apostle Paul understood that He understood, mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that today? When the Apostle Paul said that he was the chief of sinners... I am persuaded that that um, that was a description that wasn't only particularly applied to to the Apostle Paul. I think that the Apostle Paul in his sincere humility was persuaded that his sin was greater. And that was because of the humility of the Apostle Paul. But it's also important that we see that that description is rightly applied to each of us. Ours was the sin that nailed him to the tree. And so when we think of all those people out there, all of those wicked people out there, it's important that we would begin perhaps a new habit of enduring prayer, of expecting that God can and will use the same process to bring them from death to life that He did for us. And that we should no longer think that they need to go fix themselves because the reality is is that none of us fixed ourselves. Yes, discipleship, growing in grace, takes blood and sweat and tears for sure. Our blood and our sweat and our tears. And it is likely that some human has done that or is doing that for you now. As well as initially of course, our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you into the kingdom. But are we thinking, as God's people, about how they, those people, can transition from death to life? How they can transition from where they are, rejecting God, shaking their fist in His face every morning to Sunday morning being excited about coming to worship God with His people, about hearing the Word of God proclaimed, about the joy of fellowshipping together. There's there's only one difference between us and those unredeemed. And that is the mercy of God that is extended freely to all.
Let's pray.